The sun is the splendor in our sky. With mathematical precision, the sun was made purposefully and intentionally just right. It has exactly the right mass, exactly the right composition. It is matched with a planet that has precisely the right orbit, exactly the right kind of atmosphere, at just the right distance in order to sustain life. If our earth was just a little bit closer to that yellow dwarf star, the oceans would evaporate. If we were a little further away from that golden globe in the sky, our oceans would freeze. And so would we. Now, just as a a moth is drawn to the flame, so wonderful, so, so full of splendor and glory is the sun that we're, we're tempted to look at it. Oh, but be careful. If you stare at that golden globe in the sky for as little as five seconds, you can do permanent, irreversible damage to your eye. Now, the way God made your eyes, there are no nerves in your eye to know when is that too much? When you reach out and you touch a hot stove, instantly you pull your hand back because your nerves tell you too much, too hot, turn away. Ah, but when we, when we talk about the sun's rays, we don't have any feeling in our eyes to know how much is too much. The lens of your eye acts as a magnifying glass. And that light coming from the sun, if you're staring straight at it, you have that lens focusing all of that energy from the sun on the back of your retina. And you will cause, if you look at that sun for too long, you will cause um, the, the... the the cells at the back of your retina to blister and to become ineffective. It may take a little bit of time for you to, to fully realize the damage that you're doing, but you can, if you stare at the sun, if you stare at that glory in the sky, you may do such damage that you're not able to see differentiate any color and if it continues you will not be able to distinguish any shapes and if it continues you will be blind but we're not here to talk about the sun in the sky We are here this morning to talk about the sun in the heaven. 
We're going to talk about one who is far more glorious, whose splendor is superlative, one whose glory we can and will in the future see. You remember when, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai collecting the, uh, the material that would be part of the Pentateuch. In Exodus chapter 33, we read that, that Moses says to the Lord, I pray you, show me your glory. Careful, Moses. That's a dangerous prayer to utter. Verse 20 of Exodus 33 reads, The Lord responds, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And yet we get to the New Testament. And we see Jesus taking his closest three Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration because it was there that Jesus was transfigured before them. And the text of Scripture, Matthew chapter 17, tells us this. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. It it, it was as though Jesus pulled back his suit coat and allowed his three disciples to see just a little bit of what was inside. It was a glory. Now this morning, we turn to a new chapter in our study through the fourth gospel, We're in John chapter 17. This particular chapter um, has been called the Holy of Holies in Scripture. It is a prayer. The, The entire chapter is a prayer of Jesus. Now, now we have many references in the, um, in the gospel records, particularly in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that that Jesus prayed. But we don't have a great deal of exactly what Jesus prayed. If you look over at John chapter 12, verse 27, here's an example, but it's short, it's brief. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Oh, that's brief. That's succinct. Jesus prayed often. What did he pray? Well, we don't have a great deal of words. We don't have much recorded for us, except in this chapter. Some, some call this chapter the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. 
where as a priest he is interceding for his own. This particular chapter can be easily divided into three sections. First, Jesus prays for himself. Oh, that's unique. Indeed it is. We'll look at that this morning. Secondly, beginning of verse 6, Jesus prays for his disciples, specifically the 11 that are standing in front of him, and he prays for them through verse 19. Then in chapter 17, beginning of verse 20, he prays for his church, uh, his own, the other disciples that will come after them. We will spend the next month looking at this particular chapter and enjoying the richness and the depth thereof. Before I read the text this morning, I'd like to set it in context. And to do that, I want you to look forward to chapter 18 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Okay, look at that verse carefully. When he had spoken these words, what are the these words? Well, the these words, we go backwards and they include the words in chapter 17 and 16 and 15 and 14 and a little bit of chapter 13. So this big block, we call it uh, the, the upper room discourse, we call it the high priestly prayer. All of these words is what's in mind. And then Jesus goes with his disciples across the ravine, so, so, they're, so they're headed east out of Jerusalem, they cross the ravine that is the Kidron, and then they go up onto the Mount of Olives where there is a garden of olive trees, namely the Garden of Gethsemane. So what we have in chapter 17 is an extended prayer by our Lord that took place immediately after he uttered the Upper Room Discourse. Now if you look at chapter 14, and verse 31, at the very end of that verse, Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. And there is debate is, is, is exactly where Jesus went or if they went. Did, did, did he say, let us get up? And, and they all stood, stood up and, and then he said, oh, by the way, there's a couple other things I wanted to tell you, and that's where we get chapters 15 and 16. Or did they, did they leave the upper room, and they walked a little while, and they sat on some stone benches somewhere in Jerusalem and had the rest of their conversation? And we still call this the upper room discourse, but Jesus really wasn't in the upper room at all at that point. Well, we're not sure, and it really doesn't matter. By the time we get to chapter 17, the point is, Jesus allows his men to hear words that he prays to the Father. It's almost like, you know what, when you, when you get together with some close friends and you, you're, you're um, 
uh, some other believers in Christ, and you just have a delightful time of fellowship together, and one of the guys says, well, can we just pray together before we leave? And it might have been one of those kind of situations where Jesus is with his men, and chapter 17, verse 1, he lifts his eyes up to heaven and begins to pray in their presence. And they hear this tremendous prayer of intercession between God the Son and God the Father. And after that, after that, they cross the, the, the valley, which is the Kidron. They go into the, um, the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, and it's there that Jesus prays again. And that time, he, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Two prayers. The second one, in the garden, his disciples did not hear because they were asleep. Remember that. They didn't hear that. The Holy Spirit had to reveal the words that Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. The Holy Spirit had to, remind, had to t- tell them that that's what Jesus said. Chapter 17, oh, they're, they're all right there. Now, I don't know about you. Most of us, when we, when we pray, uh, we, we pray with our eyes closed. You don't have to. You ever had that kind of prayer with somebody where, where you're looking them in the eye? You're not, you're not talking to them. You're talking to your father. Oh, I'd love to do that. Maybe this is the kind of thing that Jesus experienced with his men. He may have been looking to them. Of course, chapter 17, verse 1 tells us he lifted his eyes up to heaven. But his eyes were open. His relationship with the Father was open. He was transparent, very real, very honest. It's a special, it's a special opportunity for us to, to get a glimpse into the heart and life of Jesus, the Son of God. Thomas Manton, Puritan preacher, uh, was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain. And it's said that he, he um, preached 45 sermons on this verse, on, on, this, uh, on this chapter, rather. That, that's a long series. I'm, I understand that the Scottish reformer John Knox requested that this chapter be read every day while he was on his deathbed. These are significant words, weighty words, and words that are worthy of a long and careful work. Um, let, let, me, let, me say, let me say a couple more things, rather introductory before we get to the, uh, uh, before we get to the text. Um, this is the real Lord's Prayer. And when we talk about the Lord's Prayer, typically what we are thinking about are, is that, uh, that, that section beginning in, in uh, verse 9 of, of Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. Pray in this manner, our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name, etc. We call that the Lord's Prayer. Well, really, that's the disciples' prayer. This, in chapter 17, is the real Lord's Prayer, where this is the prayer of our Lord. One, one last um, other verse of Scripture, and, and, and then re- we'll read our text. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, no, chapter 12, verse, verse, verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of the book of Hebrews is telling us to stare at the glory. Don't worry, it's not going to damage your spiritual sight. Indeed, it will do just the opposite and make it more clear. You will see more color, more life, as you fix your eyes on this one who prays. Okay, so now we're ready to, 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 look, to look at her text. John chapter 17, I'm going to read the first five verses this morning. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The hour has come, Jesus begins his prayer. He's used this language repeatedly throughout the Upper Room Discourse. The hour has come. The time has come. Uh, It is is at hand. And, of course, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the, the high point of his redemptive mission. He had a particular role assigned to him, a role assigned and now accomplished by him. Glory to the Son and glory to the Father comes in this package. It's at hand. It's now. This is the time. Glorify your name. I've divided my thoughts into three sections. You'll find them in your notes. The assigned mission, the accomplished mission, and the affirmed mission. Verse 2 Chapter 17. As you gave him authority, let's pause right there. Jesus is speaking of himself in the third person. 
In doing so, he is emphasizing the integral unity within the Trinity. The Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit, though he is not mentioned directly here, they are all together united in this one mission, this mission of redemption. When God created mankind, he knew exactly what would happen. He knew that Adam and Eve and their posterity would go their own way, do their own thing. They would reject the God who created them. And it's exactly as God planned, scripted, understood. He had from eternity past planned a rescue mission for mankind. Verse 2, the Father gave the Son authority over all flesh. In other words, Jesus is the one who is controlling. He is the one who is in charge of all mankind. More specifically, he was given authority to those whom the Father had given him. Psalm 68, repeatedly throughout the the book of Revelation, we find references to the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And in that book, God has written the names of everyone he was going to give to the Son. Before anyone was born, anyone lived on planet Earth, God wrote the names of each one who would believe. And the Son was given authority to redeem those individuals. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give them eternal life. There is a particular group of people here, a limited group of people here, that have been given to the Son by the Father. Cross-reference this with John chapter 6, verse 37. Of course, we've already been over here, but it's good to review. It all, all ties perfectly to what, uh, together. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. A few verses later, Jesus amplifies this idea, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is a limited, particular group of people 
given to the Son by the Father for whom the Son to whom the Son gives eternal life. These, according to verse 7, given to the Son by the Father, will come to me. Now, fallen mankind doesn't want anything to do with God. <laughs> uh, fallen mankind loves loves their sin, um, loves uh, doing life, living life according to their own uh, designs and purposes. They don't want God. Oh, they might tolerate God. And they even might look religious on the outside, but it's all for selfish purposes. They have no, no intention of submitting themselves, heart, mind, soul, and strength to the living God. No one can do that. No one wants to do that unless they have been drawn by the Father and equipped by the Holy Spirit with something they don't possess. They have to be given a heart that actually beats. That stony heart that is within them that rejects God, wants to do their own thing, that's removed. And the Holy Spirit gives them something that is actually functional. Functioning as God intended it for to function. That's what we call being born again. And it's that person who is born again that has been given a new ability, a new capacity to do what God wants them to do, namely to, to follow after him, know him, and the Son, Jesus the Christ. This group of people, given to the Son, are given eternal life. Second page of your notes. And this is what eternal life is. Verse 3 of our text. This is eternal life, that they may know you, and the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, Jesus is not defining what eternal life is. He's not giving us a dictionary definition. He is giving us a description of what eternal life is, namely, a personal relationship with God. This is eternal life that they may know you. The unsafe person doesn't want to know God, but once that person has been changed, transformed, been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, that person is given a new capacity and a new desire to want to know God. And these, Jesus says, well, I'm not going to cast any of these out. No, they will come they will desire to know, and I will give them eternal life. I will give them a knowledge of God. And this is Jesus' assignment. He is to reveal God the Father to those who would follow Him, those who would believe on Him, those who would submit to Him. 
I want you to, I want you to mentally just follow along with me as I so selectively read to you a, a handful of passages of, of Scripture talking about this nature of eternal life, knowing God. Hosea chapter 6, I'm, I'm sorry, verse, chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, the prophet writes. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They're destroyed because they don't know God. They've rejected a relationship with him. But there is coming a day, the prophet Habakkuk says, when, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is coming a time, still future, where the knowledge of God will cover the globe. Knowledge of His glory. People seeking that glory. Wanting to stare at that glory. Millennia ago, Solomon wrote a couple of proverbs that many of you have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The Hebrew word translated acknowledge, which is the common way that we read that particular verse of Scripture, the Hebrew word is more literally and more commonly translated no. It reads like this. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your paths straight. Without knowledge, without this knowledge of God, there is no salvation. Eternal life is to know God. That is, to have a personal relationship with him. Just as Jesus had a personal relationship with the Father, so he invites, ushers in, welcomes in, points to the glorious one, and says, guys, this is eternal life. Know God. In Hebrews chapter 1, this is, this is what Jesus did. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. You remember just moments before in um, this upper room, Jesus had a conversation with Philip. And, and Philip says, chapter 14, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, that's enough. And Jesus bangs his head a little bit on the, on the, on the wall next to him, 
saying, ay, 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 oy vey. I think he was still Jewish at that point. Um, he, uh, he said, um, have, I, have I been with you so long, Philip? Wait, wait a minute. Don't you get it? <laughs> if you see me, you've seen the Father. Th- this was his assignment. If you look over at John chapter 1, the Apostle John says in verse 19, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's Jesus' role. He is to come and he is to explain the Father so that by his words and by his works, people saw the Father. That's Jesus' assignment. You go to earth and you show them the Father. That's what he did. First John chapter First John chapter five, verse eleven. The testimony is this, the apostle John writes God has given God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. So if you have the Son, you believe in the Son, you trust the Son, you have submitted to the Son, and at the same time, you have known the Father. You have seen the Father. You have trusted the Father. You have submitted to the Father. And in that, the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified, and we are saved. Point number two. The accomplished mission. Back in our text, verse 4. Jesus says, I I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus glorified the Father on earth, having finished, wrapped up, accomplished the work given to him. Now, we know what the, given, what the work uh, given to him was. We know what his assignment was. And Jesus says, it's done. Now, let me review just briefly where we were last week in verse 28 of chapter 16. That glorious verse that in four phases describes the totality of Jesus' mission of redemption. Read it with me again. I came forth from the Father, phase one, and have come into the world, phase two. I am leaving the world again, phase three, and going to the Father, phase four. 
Jesus was given the charge. This is part of his assignment. Leave heaven and go to earth. Deity becomes man. This is the incarnation. And he was to live on earth, come into the world as a sinful offering. He had to live a perfect, flawless, morally pristine life without sin. No imperfection at all in Christ. He had to do that as a part of his mission of redemption in order to be considered, accepted as a possible substitute for mankind. He had to be a man in order to be an accepted sacrifice. He had to be a flawless, blemish-free man. And Jesus accomplished that. He, He had to come into the world, he had to leave the world, phase three, in death on the cross. Of course, we know that he came back in the resurrection. He had uh, appearances for a period of 40 days. He appeared to hundreds of, 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 uh, of, of believers, sometimes in large settings, sometimes uh, on, on a one-to-one basis. Text tells us, uh, middle of verse 28, that he left the world again. Ah, that's a reference to his departure, not just in death. That was the first time. The again was his departure by means of his ascension. And he went up to be with the Father 40 days after his resurrection, his ascension. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Angels were standing around with the disciples as they stared into heaven as Jesus ascended. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, I'm not going to read that verse right now. I'm, uh, no, I'm, I'm going I'm uh, to cover it up so that it'll be a secret, Okay. Actually, I should pay attention to my notes to find out where in the world I am. So, we're in verse 3. See, I don't even know where I am. We're in verse 4. Chapter 17, verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished this work. Okay, now here's a debate among Bible teachers. Um, Not a major debate. Not a a theological thorny thing. Um, it, it, it centers around the word accomplished. Is this word actual, historical, or is it proleptic? Meaning, did Jesus refer to something that had at that time been accomplished in human history? Or was he proleptically taking a step back looking at the totality of his work outside of time and space and referring to the whole thing as being accomplished. Both are possible. Jesus had, at this moment, accomplished phase one and phase two. He had come down 
in the incarnation, and he had lived a perfect, sinless, flawless life. He was ready to die on the cross, that's phase three, but he wasn't there yet, historically. But was he anticipating this? And was his obedience to the Father so perfect, so flawless, that he could say, it's already been accomplished. Well, us Westerners might be tempted to think, well, he's probably talking about the first, because he hadn't, in time and space, accomplished the, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension that hadn't happened. But I think it's the second meaning, that proleptic meaning of this, where Jesus steps back in time. I think that's the better way to look at this particular uh, verb of accomplished. And I get that from the context. If you look at chapter 17, verse 11, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. Wait a minute. He's standing right there. What do you mean he's no longer in the world? Well, I think he's, he's looking at this outside of time. And again, in verse 12, it, it begins, while I was with them, Jesus says, wait a minute, you're, you're standing right in front of them. You're still with them. Well, again, Jesus is stepping back, and he, he's looking at, at the totality of his work, this mission of redemption. It is, he's, he's saying, accomplished. Fait accompli. An accomplished fact. Nothing Jesus has left undone. I have accomplished all the work which you have given me to do. Point number three. The affirmed mission, verse 5, now, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, this is the only time in Scripture where, where Jesus prays for himself to the best of my knowledge. Of course, we could look, at, look back at verse uh, 1 of chapter 17, and even though it's, it's, um, it's, it's in the third person, Jesus is saying the same thing. Glorify your son. Or here in verse 5, glorify me. Now, we have to make a couple of points of clarification here to understand what Jesus is saying when he asks the Father to glorify him. And let's start with the incarnation itself. When Jesus left heaven, look back at verse 28 of chapter 16, I came forth from the Father. When that happened, Jesus did not become less than God. Jesus was still fully God though he did lay aside some of the divine attributes in order that he be become a man. 
that he be clothed in humanity. He have a human nature. Jesus, unlike any other being, had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature. So when he came forth from the Father, when he left the the throne of heaven and came to earth as a man, his deity was veiled. It was as though he he put 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 a jacket over his glory. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration that he allowed his disciples to see just just a glimpse of that glory. We have to understand that Jesus did not stop being God in any way. He simply was adding to who he was humanity a human nature, a human body. Okay? Now, when, um, when he died um, and was then subsequently raised, he still had a human body, albeit a resurrected body. A, a body like you and I don't know yet. We'll get one, but we don't have one yet. We don't know what it's like to be able to enter into a room or a house without opening a door. Jesus was able to do that in his resurrected body. Our resurrected body will be different, dramatically so, but it will be a human body nonetheless. In John chapter 20, we we find that the resurrected Jesus in his resurrected body, still had the marks of the cross. He still had nail points. He still had the, 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 the scar from where the, where the sword um, uh, was thrust into his side. Y- you could still see his humanity in his resurrected state. Now, it was this resurrected body that ascended into heaven. Okay, now I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 1, and I will reveal what I was going to read earlier. Ah, the secret verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The the disciples are standing around watching Jesus ascend into heaven. Well, that was some other kind of sight. Well, Well, there are standing with them other angels, that are speaking to the men. One of them in particular says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Meaning that Jesus, now at the right hand of the throne of God, is a spirit being with a resurrected body. I really don't understand what that looks like. I have to take the scriptures at face value and affirm uh, that um, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't get it. 
But Jesus is still in that resurrected body, and he's going to return in the same method, in the same way as he went up to heaven. So that in years to come, or maybe if it happens this afternoon, we will be able to not only see his glory, see him in his resurrected body, we will be also able to see the, 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 where, where the, the nails punctured his skin as he hung on the cross, where, where the sword pierced his side. We'll be able to see those things. Will that bring him any less glory? No. So when he prays, back in our text, verse 5, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, he will be given that same glory. It will be slightly different in that he will have that resurrected body. We, we, we sometimes think, mankind thinks, that the cross was a means of shame, degradation, um, uh, humiliation. Well, in, in many respects, it, it was. But it was also um, a, a sign of great victory, conquest by Christ. It was the means to his glorification. And when he was received into heaven, when he was coronated following his, his ascension, when he was given that, that name which is above every name, when he was declared the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, the sovereign one of the universe, the most blessed of all creation. Uh, let me take back that last phrase. That, would, that, that could be construed as, by some to, to mean that Jesus was a created being. N- not, I don't mean that at all. Uh, no. Um, the most blessed one. Let's just leave it there. Um, he was affirmed by the Father to be God a very God, the fulfiller, the redeemer of mankind. He was the one who accomplished the assignment assigned to him. Conclusion. My friends, if, if you are here, you, you may have sat in pews like this for years and years. Talk with a family just last week who was in that situation. They had, both the husband and the wife, had, had, had been in churches for years and years and years. And just four years ago, here they are in their late 50s, mid-50s maybe, uh, and, and just four years ago were actually converted and born again. Oh, that happens far more than we would care to realize But I encourage you to take a 
close look in your own heart. Have, have you run from sin? Have you fled to the Savior? Are, are, are you one that's afraid of looking into the glory? Looking into the, into the sun? Are you, are you afraid of staring at the glorious one? Well, if you stare at the S-U-N, yeah, you're going to get hurt. But if you stare into the S-O-N, you'll be eternally saved. Believe on Him. Trust Him. Submit to Him. There is help in no one else. I close with Psalm 2. The author of this particular psalm, we don't know who it is, spoke of the Son and, the, um, and, and the, uh, the last verse of it reads, uh, this is from the New Living Translation, submit to God's royal Son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we know that there is salvation in no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us a hunger and a thirst, an insatiable appetite to know the Father and to know the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. Find us hungry, find us faithful to know you and walk with you. In the name of the glorious risen one, amen.